Welcome to the Healthy Returns Podcast, where I sit down with founders, investors, and executives innovating in health tech, fitness and wellness, and human performance. My guest today is Jess Schramm, Director of Investments and Incubations at Remedy Product Studio. Remedy acts as an extension of operating teams, partnering with founders to build out strategy and software. Jess brings a highly informed perspective on all things healthcare to her new role at Remedy. She previously worked at Swift Dark Ventures, investing in consumer health and wellness tech companies, increasing access, affordability, and quality of care. In today's episode, we discuss digital health trends, healthcare consumerization, and our country's maternal mortality crisis. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy today's episode. Hey, Jess, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, you know, with, with this podcast, I've been learning a lot about the health and wellness space and specifically health and wellness ventures. And it seems pretty apparent at this point that you've become synonymous with that space. So I know I'm setting you up to boast here a little bit, but why exactly is that? Thank you. Well, that's super, super flattering. I guess my interest in the healthcare space has started well before my time in VC. When I first started out my career, I was a more of a consultant. I was on a digital transformation team at a company called Edelman. One of my biggest clients for a very long time was MD Anderson Cancer Research Hospital. And then combine that with coming from a family of doctors. Um, my, my brother works in the ER. My sister is a physical therapist. My mom is a nutritionist and certified diabetes educator. And kind of my whole life and early career right out of college continued to be met with um, the understanding about how broken the healthcare system is. And when I went to business school and pivoted into venture, First of all, that was during the pandemic. So as you and everyone listening knows, that's really when healthcare transformed overnight, right? Like the the pace of innovation accelerated tenfold because we needed to. Telemedicine was always around, but very rarely used, and it became a necessity. All the while, I think it pointed out what I was initially getting at, which was the realization that healthcare is so broken. It is so broken. And I think there is so much room for innovation and to be fixed that for me, when I was thinking about how I wanted to continue my career, it became apparent that this was an industry that was not going away. This is an industry that is not fad based. It is not cyclical. There is so much room for change. And it's also one that is massive. You know, you could really boil the ocean when you talk about health. You can think about software and uh, enterprise tools to help hospital systems and providers work faster and more efficiently. There's patient tools and, and services that can help improve access and affordability for healthcare. You could talk about elder care, women's health, pediatrics, weight loss. There's multiple verticals within the larger umbrella of healthcare. And so I found that being a specialist in health would serve me well if later I wanted to work at a generalist VC fund, because I believe that healthcare is not something you can learn overnight. And so I've kind of dove headfirst into this industry since graduating from Columbia with my MBA, and I've been loving it. You come from a household that centered around healthcare with nutrition, uh, physical therapy, uh, ER medicine. So being surrounded by that, did you feel that you could make the most change and the most impact in healthcare outside of the traditional healthcare system? And is that why you chose venture capital? I think for me, it was, well, 
first of all, I knew from a younger age that I was not going to be fit to be a doctor. Uh, did not biology and AP bio and, and orgo and all of that was not where I found the most passion. But I think to answer your question head on, I believe personally that being in venture capital and being closest to the businesses that are at the cusp of innovation for me felt more energizing than working in healthcare as a consultant, working with these behemoth legacy institutions that were kind of continuing to do things the old way. And for me, the more exciting aspect of healthcare, the more exciting ecosystem to be in was in the startup ecosystem. And the obvious choice became, how can I get closest to those companies? And venture capital became an area of interest. And in business school, sort of validating that hypothesis through internships at VC funds, seeing how they got involved with startups and actually, and how they didn't get involved with, with some companies, which is, uh, we'll talk about later and why my transition to Remedy Product Studio, where I lead investments now, but really at the end of the day, it was my desire to be closer to the people who were on the cusp of that change. Let's talk about that transition to Remedy. Um, could you please explain for listeners your your role now and how you're supporting other startups? Yeah, happy to. So I recently accepted a position as Director of Investments and Innovation at Remedy Product Studio. Just for context on the studio and our model, Remedy is a product studio, which means we act as an extension of operating teams and provide a full suite of technical and product support. The product studio model is very distinct from a dev shop or agency or staff og firm. We focus on product holistically. Um, we're agile. We're lean. We don't work off a list of requirements to simply execute tasks we're given. We focus on forming a close partnership and collaboration with our partners and delivering on business outcomes. And that means our team members participate in all processes of the product solution process. And we try to really build context and define what our team can do to help our partners drive their KPIs and achieve business goals in the leanest way possible. And since we often invest in businesses we work with, it is really in our DNA to suggest where there might be unnecessary components. We don't like to overbuild. We don't like to overspend if we don't have to. If there's a good buy versus build option, we will raise that with the founding team. And that filters all the way down to our interview processes with our technical team, where really PMs and engineers are tested on their agile mindset and their ability to break down complex problems into bite-sized stories. So that's a little bit about Remedy as a whole. My transition to Remedy was interesting because at my previous firm, Swift Arc Ventures, where I focused exclusively on digital health, one of the companies that we had committed investment to was a business called Ash Wellness. And having doing diligence on Ash, I realized that Ash was actually built by Remedy Product Studio. And the founder was incredibly happy with the output and the outcome of that work. And if you are you know, familiar with talking to founders about tech and finding good technical talent, you know, and people are probably nodding along with me right now, that it's kind of one of the biggest challenges for early stage companies, especially in the healthcare space, because oftentimes founders are non-technical with clinical backgrounds or business backgrounds, and they don't have the coding or engineering or dev experience. So oftentimes they don't even know where to begin. 
and finding a technical team, whether that's internally being hired or outsourced is one of the greatest challenges. So when David, the founder of Ash, brought up the tremendous impact that Remedy was having, I found that to be interesting and kind of an anomaly from what I usually hear when speaking with healthcare founders. And when I realized that they had invested into Ash as well, for me as another investor, like on that cap table, it was, okay, well, this is super interesting. Here's a product partner that has a fiduciary responsibility in this portfolio company, right? There's a vested interest in seeing this business succeed. That actually means they're putting their money where their mouth is and they not only believe in the product that they're building so much so that they're willing to back it, but that they truly are going to act in the best interest when it comes to that build. They're not going to overspend. They're not going to custom code where it's unnecessary, suggesting coding languages that might have better libraries or where you can borrow things off the shelf. And ultimately, with an investment, what that means financially for the business is reducing their burn rate while increasing the product velocity. So that's just music to an investor's ears, doing more with less with a partner that has a vested interest to succeed, and obviously doing it at a much more affordable rate than if you were to hire two very senior engineers in the US that you probably would have to underpay and therefore overcompensate with equity. And so my favorite part about Remedy then and now as I'm a member of the team is that we are essentially minority investors with lead investor value add, with a lead investor mindset. I love that. And you kind of saying at the beginning how you always want it to be as close as possible to the innovation. Um, this role feels like it suits you perfectly, right? Because you are literally right there innovating with these teams and with these startups that are coming to you guys. I'm super interested in learning more about the, the sweat equity model that Remedy invests with. Sure thing. So Remedy primarily invests in the form of equity for service or sweat equity, as you mentioned. And this means we deliver technical resources in exchange for minority ownership, commensurate with the dollar amount invested and at the terms the lead sets for that round. And I say that explicitly because our investments do not happen in silos. It is not like a Techstars or a Y Combinator. We participate in the same rounds that businesses are fundraising for at present. And that means we we borrow the term set by the lead. Our investment size is typically anywhere from 50K to 150K, sweet spot being $100,000 into pre-seed to series A businesses. We then draw down on this investment as a services credit over a set time horizon. So for example, if it's a $100,000 investment over a 10 month period, the founder takes off $10,000 of their um, monthly burn with us as a services credit. So in that way, we are really, again, reducing the burn, lowering burn on a consistent smoothed out basis while increasing product velocity. I have had questions in the past, so I'm going to proactively sort of get to those right now, which is, well, why don't you use the, the whole investment up front first? And then, you know, if there's still need to work with a product studio, they can continue at the full rate afterward. And when we were structuring the terms of our investment in thinking like a VC, for me and for the founders we work with, it's actually in their best interest to take the services credit in an amortized basis. So when you're mapping out your PNL from your previous year for your next fundraise, 
your costs, your expenses don't look like they're near zero. And then all of a sudden tripled after six months. That doesn't look good for anybody. It's much better to have a, a smoothed out line item on your in your COGS where your ex expenses, your team are relatively stable over a longer period of time. But in essence, getting a 30 to 35% discount on what it would have been if not for the investment there. So if I'm a founder and my company pitches to Remedy and you know you guys decide to take us on, what does that whole timeline look like? Does it span a couple of years? And in addition to the product development side, are you guys helping with fundraising at the same time? Definitely not years. I'll answer the first one. Timing-wise, from intro meeting to determining product partnership and investment, we have done that in as quickly as two weeks. If there is an investment component, meaning if the business is fundraising currently, and they're talking to us parallel path on their product needs and their use of funds going toward the next phase of their build, typically that will happen as the business is trying to secure a lead. So my product partner, Iggy, he, he leads product here. He'll usually come on with our, have a meeting with our lead engineer and him. They'll really try to understand, again, the business outcomes. What KPIs do you need to drive? What is your vision for this next phase? We will staff a team. And then myself on the investment side, I tend to, and very open with founders about this, but because we are minority investors, we need to take on the terms the lead sets for the round. So typically I don't begin diligence until there is a lead, but we obviously have those conversations ahead of time. So it really depends on the founder's fundraising process. If a founder comes to us toward the end and they say, hey, we already have a lead. Here's what we want to do. Here's the budget we're setting aside for this fundraise to be put toward our next phase of build. We can move, like I said, as quickly as two weeks. And then it takes roughly up to 30 days for us to ramp up the team, get them staffed. But in terms of making a decision and coming to the table with an investment amount or a fee equity split, we can move as quickly as the founder likes. That's fast for sure. And I guess you'd probably attribute that to just having actually so much sweat equity and again, putting your money where your mouth is. So really feeling like you're part of the team for, for that amount of time. Absolutely. I want to pivot here a little bit because, you know, after all, this is a healthcare podcast. So I actually want to go back and touch on your previous experiences investing in digital health at Swift Dark Ventures. Digital health spans consumer health and traditional healthcare. So did you have your foot more in either of those buckets or was it kind of split? At Swift Dark, our thesis was around four main areas it was pediatrics, women's health, obesity and mental health. So in within those buckets, we looked at solutions across both consumer and B2B. However, I think this is actually an interesting segue to talk about something that's often misunderstood about early stage investing in digital health, especially when I talk to generalist VCs that dabble in healthcare occasionally, but not always. The ideal business in many investors' mind is a company, even if it services patients, but it's a business that has contracts with insurers, contracts with employers. So inevitably, it is also this B2B2C model or B2B model. And I think the um, misnomer here is that in order for early stage healthcare services businesses to sell to 
payers and providers and health systems, they typically need a stage of their life cycles where they're proving clinical efficacy with consumers. So in most cases, these companies that are now selling to employers and, and health systems at one point started off just direct to consumer. And they need to do that because they need to have proof of concept. They need to prove outcomes. They need to be able to show they were able to lower the cost of care by reducing readmission rates, reducing hospitalizations, increasing medication adherence, right? All of those things. And so my heart does sometimes go out to early stage founders. And when I say early, I mean pre-seed and seed, because you'll see some investors just full on pass on these opportunities that have such incredible potential to be employer based or to be able to be sold into a health system or a provider. And it's because they're still at that earliest proof of concept stage. And so I say this to answer your question around, did you focus mostly on D to direct to consumer or B2B? And um, in some cases for healthcare specifically, the one company that might look like a direct-to-consumer business now inevitably will turn into something different in three years. And so as a healthcare investor, you need to be able to have that mindset and see that long-term vision. That's a really great insight in keeping up with the evolution of certain companies. I've definitely seen that. But then a recent podcast guest was uh, Dr. Patrick Carroll, who's the chief medical officer of Hims and Hers. And you look at them and they've completely disintermediated the payers altogether. So they've kind of stayed in this um, D to C realm. And I guess to your point, you know, maybe there is potential with them to, to go um, B to B with employers. Focusing on consumer health, I want to touch on some predictions you made at the beginning of 2022. Prediction number one. In one to three years, traditional insurance coverage will no longer be considered necessary for preventative care as new low-cost solutions emerge across digital health verticals. I think that's actually been panning out. You see now that there are companies, and these are now late-stage businesses, but like Sesame Health and K-Health um, in the primary care space and some of the mental health companies like Uplift. If you go on their websites, you will now almost always see an out-of-pocket cost option alongside some sort of indicator that, but we also accept your insurance. But there is that option. Let me just be clear, that option always existed in healthcare, right? Like if you didn't have insurance and you walked into your doctor's office, they would bill you a lower rate because they're not sending the bill off to insurance. I personally, when I was in between my last job and remedy, the one week, of course, I had no health insurance. I, I got a UTI. I had to go get lab work. They sent me the bill. It was like over $400. I called and then they said, oh, we're so sorry. This was the insurance bill. The out-of-pocket cost for the same lab is actually only $73.80. And so my point being, this all existed, but it wasn't marketed in such a way. And digital health companies are now taking advantage of the fact that there are lower costs. Um, the out-of-pocket cost typically is always lower than it is if you bill to insurance. So for Sesame Health, you know, on their front page, it's doctor appointments as low as $29. Um, for K Health, it's more of a membership thing where you pay roughly $150 a quarter. I think it's maybe 147 bucks or something. And then you can chat with a primary care doctor in the comfort of your home. Similar pricing exists among a few mental health platforms. And I see this 
more and more as being something that is advertised and something that patients are being educated on as an option. Yeah. And do you think advertising that it could be cheaper for patients and consumers? I'd have to imagine that that'll surely increase access to care, especially in populations that historically, you know, haven't had that easy access. Absolutely. I And I think that is the beauty more broadly about telemedicine and digital health and the consumerization of healthcare writ large, which is increasing accessibility, affordability, and quality of care with a consumer lens. Let's move on to prediction two. In five to 10 years, private insurance will look a lot more like the consumer businesses we see operating around it as providers alter traditional insurance models to be more data-driven, consumer-friendly, and affordable than ever before. This, I still think, is in the works. Um, and I think, though, it is in line with my prediction of five to 10 versus one to three. But here's why I think we're, we're on the path to private insurance looking a lot more like consumer businesses and leveraging data to be more consumer-friendly and affordable. I currently see a world in which everyone that's using a wearable device Every, all this data that's being collected on our smartwatches, on our smartphones, in the apps we use where we're manually tracking and inputting things like our um, menstrual cycles and our diet and what we eat and how we feel and our emotional tracking. I see a future where all of this data comes together in a way that helps insurance companies from an actuary perspective, right? You're able to predict outcomes for this patient a little bit more precisely than you were previously. And what that means is I still see a future in which insurance rates, right, instead of picking arbitrary buckets of different plans within your larger plan, right, with different different sort of constructions of your out-of-pocket spend or your deductible or all of that stuff, I think there's going to be a future, and I hope there's a company in the works maybe one day calling all founders an idea for you is leverage this data to offer more customizable and personalized care plans for people that are taking care of themselves and that are tracking these things. Obviously, with that, with the conversation of data in healthcare, I think there is also a lot of eyes open and red flags around privacy and, oh my God, like they know everything about me. And for the sick, obviously, this does not benefit them. And right now, we live in a world that does benefit the sick. Ultimately, insurance companies are not paying for wellness. They're paying for sickness. And I think this is a fundamental issue. It's called the two-year dilemma, which is that on average, people leave their jobs. They switch jobs roughly within two years. And when you switch jobs, you often switch insurance carriers. And so insurance providers are very unwilling to be paying for healthy lifestyle habits that have a long tail benefit beyond that two-year horizon. They're much more likely to pay for things that they can see within their own life cycle with that patient, a material outcome. So things like food as medicine, healthy eating, exercise, very rarely, I'm not saying always, but very rarely are those things covered by insurance. Sure, sometimes employers have benefits because it's in their best interest for their employees to be mentally, physically, emotionally healthy. But for insurance companies, we are still living in a very broken system where it is more beneficial for them to pay for sickness than health. I love how you frame that in that 
to your timeline because that makes it very clear because a lot of these you know lifestyle interventions and uh wellness behaviors and habits all of them are really aimed at preventing you know long-term chronic disease and the key word there is long term right so nothing nothing's going to show up within 2 years whether positive or negative do you think the data that's being obtained from these wearable technologies do you think the the validity and the accuracy and reliability is there right now for insurance companies to be able to cover them in some cases i think yes in the cases of and i'll i'll be more specific with wearables continuous glucose monitors things like heart rate trackers from your apple watch i i do think the the validity is there and i've i've seen incredible stories i mean my grandmother was actually wearing an apple watch and it detected her afib before it happened she went to the hospital because it said fall detected she did not fall but it it detected an irregular pattern in her heartbeat and arguably like right that saved her life and so i do think it's there i i think the pregnancy and contraception component of temperature, the detecting of sickness, like you're getting COVID, the NBA adopted aura rings, you know, because of that very reason. So I think with wearables, it is there. I think for some of the mental health components, there is still room to be decided because it is not being automatically captured. There are apps that as a patient, if you are choosing to visit the app every day and input your feelings and emotions and then track how that's changing over time, sure, but the retention of those apps aren't very strong, and it's a burden on the user to be doing that every single day. So I think if you're looking at healthcare in a sort of myopic physical lens, then there are some components that I think are definitely there, and I'm very impressed and amazed by the efficacy and accuracy of of those. But with other elements of healthcare, particularly mental health, which is arguably just as important, there needs to be some improvement. Let's move on to the final prediction. So prediction three, adjacent spaces such as CPG, fitness, fast food, and functional beverages will follow suit as living well becomes the new normal, not just a concern for diabetics, athletes, at-risk individuals, or health-conscious gym hardos. I think that this is definitely underway. I mean, the most notable change I've seen here is the rise of the continuous glucose monitor. There are so many companies offering personalized insights into non-clinical issues like weight loss, energy levels, and people are willing to wear these things on their arms day in and day out for months on end. My mom, as I mentioned earlier, is a nutritionist and certified diabetes educator. And CGMs, I mean, that's something that not only did diabetics pretty much only wear, but it was almost a stigma, right? You're walking around your pool party, and then one of your friends has this thing attached to the back of their arm. And it's like, what is that? Like, that's a little weird. Not only is it has it become destigmatized, it's the signal of care and attention to your performance and your lifestyle and your well-being. It is actually for like the super fit, super healthy, or people that aspire to be living their most optimal life are wearing these CGMs. And I think that is just one example of a way that this prediction actually is slowly starting to play out. 
I love what you said there. Um, I had a, a previous conversation with the founder and CEO of Super Sapiens, which is a pretty, pretty well-known uh, CGM. And his point was exactly that, where I asked him, what would his vision be for the, in the next five to 10 years in terms of the impact that Super Sapiens would have on society? And his vision was that when you see someone walking around with the Super Sapiens patch on their arm, it's a signal that they care about themselves, they care about others, and they care about, you know, making the world a better place. So I think that just echoes, you know, what, what you just brought up. There's a lot of um, talk of access to care in the public sector and government, right, with policies, Medicare, Medicaid, that sort of thing. What role do you think the private sector has in terms of the startup and um, entrepreneurship ecosystem in terms of addressing these barriers? Hmm, that's a good question. I will answer with an example, which is that, as discussed earlier, when we were talking about COVID and how that really accelerated innovation in healthcare seemingly overnight, one thing that changed was the adoption of telemedicine. And when telemedicine became necessary because we were not able to be seen in person, the public health emergency allowed so much to be done virtually. And one of those things really impacted the mental health industry, which was being able to prescribe controlled substances via telehealth appointment. And when you think about controlled substances, it most often affects mental health because ADHD medication like Vyvanse is a controlled substance. Different mental health medications like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, that ketamine is a controlled substance. Testosterone for gender-affirming care is a controlled substance. Ambien for sleep, that's a controlled substance. So all of these things, again, enabled accessibility of health. But on May 11th, when the public health emergency ended, all of these new startups that cropped up in the private sector that were now increasing accessibility by prescribing controlled substances via telehealth were at risk of completely going under. If we reversed those healthcare flexibilities, businesses like Journey Clinical, like Plume, um, businesses that were prescribing controlled substances over telemedicine for better mental health, for gender affirming care, um, there, this whole category was at risk of, of kind of being flipped on its head. And what we saw happen was the biggest sort of call to action by ATA, the American Telehealth Association, and startups everywhere putting in comments against this public health emergency reversal, changing telemedicine. And it was, I think it was over 38,000 comments that um, the DEA received in response to this ruling and how it would so severely impact patients that were now for the first time experiencing this great continuity of care. For example, I mean, Nolan, you're a college student. What if you had a psychiatrist that was treating you for who knows, the ADHD medication or depression, whatever it might be, and you're in Atlanta, right? And then you go home to New Jersey and there's this now discontinuity of care because you can't speak with your provider when you're in Atlanta. There's so many issues that arise. There's people that would miss medication because they physically can't get to an appointment. They work hours like nine to five jobs. And if they take off from work, they're actually not getting paid. They're not salaried employees. And so now there's been a 
long pause in that reversal and it is going to be revisited again in a year and if i'm willing to bet any money on it i think it will not pass love how you frame that in terms of mental health care because i think especially with just how much a provider shortage we already have in the us i think it's just so important to continue to innovate to increase access to care there I know we're coming up a little bit on time here. Um, wanted to touch on women's health, and I guess I'll just I'll just pose this one question. So, um, on Monday, the White House announced a new initiative to significantly increase funding for women's health research. Let's say you were in the driver's seat for that initiative. If you were in charge of where that money goes, where would you allocate it, and how would you invest it specifically into the women's health startup ecosystem? Absolutely. That's a great question. And for me, it's a very easy question to answer. I think the maternal mortality crisis is so, so dire in this country and really needs to be addressed. So that is where I think the money should be spent. Our country's maternal mortality rate is the highest of any developed nation in the world and more than double the rate of peer countries that look like the United States, which is embarrassing. Um, and the US is embarrassed about it. The US has taken steps to reduce maternal deaths in recent years. Uh, the ratio is still higher than in comparable countries. And there are significant racial disparities that remain, particularly among black mothers. Black women are two to three times more likely to die from pregnancy related complications than white women. Black women are 80% more likely to return to the emergency room during their postpartum period. They're 40% more likely to suffer from postpartum mental health illness. And they're almost 90% more likely to have medical procedures done without their consent during the maternal postpartum birthing period. And so for me, the easy, the easy answer around where, where money should be spent in women's health is in maternal care and specifically for the, the racial disparity we see in maternal care. I'll also say that there's been some recent tailwinds to, to favor sort of this issue, which is that in April of last year, Olympic athlete Tori Bowie died of post-birth complications. And she was a 32-year-old Olympic athlete with a very well-resourced and um, a Black woman. And she she suffered from issues that led to her death, unfortunately. And I think that was a huge wake-up call for the United States. Um, just a month or two later, the Biden administration committed $65 million to the effort of increasing innovation around lowering instances of maternal mortality and improving outcomes with maternal morbidity. So I think that for me, this is a big passion of mine. I think everyone, every investor should be opening their eyes to solutions in this space, given the government and states across our nation are actively trying to find ways to solve it. New Jersey is actually one of the most proactive on this effort, and they are now introducing a maternal care report card for more than 80 of their birthing centers in the states and cultural competency training in New Jersey is mandatory. So I do think that states will begin to follow suit like New Jersey. Right now, I believe roughly 10 to 12 states um, mandate culturally competent care training and many more are following suit. Yeah, it's, it's great to hear that both the public and private sector are, are 
um, really starting to get involved in in this very uh, important important issue. For sure, and it's so necessary. We went through your predictions back in the beginning of 2022. I'll have you make two more predictions about where you think digital health, healthcare, and you can even you know go into to wellness and consumer health if you want is going in 2024. There is one major prediction that that I already sort of see underway that I think is going to continue, which is sort of stemming on the change we've already seen with healthcare moving into the home and the consumerization of healthcare. It's the this this trend of self-servicing your health, right? It's the issuance of new companies like Hims and Hers and NERCs, all of these many at-home testing businesses that essentially you ship a test kit to your house. It, you know, it's either urine, stool, saliva, or blood prick, and you're able to get personalized reports on your specific gut microbiome and how that contributes to your skin health or your physical health and testing for menopause at home and your AMH levels or simple things like STI and STD testing that were so often stigmatized and not happening regularly because you didn't want to always go to your urologist or your OBGYN. People really would only do that once or twice a year or if they felt they were at risk of an STD. But now if it's possible and it is to test yourself from home, I really see the at-home testing, self-servicing of your own health conditions completely expediting. And I see that trend taking place more and more into the future as we're able to collect samples and as lab technology and the science behind at-home testing continues to exponentially increase. A second prediction that I have around healthcare, and I think this is one maybe the audience is waiting to hear about, is my thoughts about AI and health. And I think as data starts to become easier to pull, thanks to you know new interoperability regulation changes, health companies and hospital systems are going to have more data than they really even know what to do with. And the ability to apply large language models to interpret that data and then repurpose it for different use cases seems like an obvious opportunity for that space. At the same time, health systems are facing strained resource capacity. There's burnt out physicians everywhere. There's a resource crisis, right? A staffing shortage of healthcare providers, which is all leading to escalating patient costs. It's tougher to be seen. All of these challenges demand that there is a revolution in care delivery. And the only way to feasibly do that without sacrificing care quality is with automation enabled by AI. And there is a lot that's already being seen in the space with like virtual scribe functionality and making manual patient intake data collection much easier. Um, But AI has also transformed drug discovery and pharmaceutical R&D. And companies are now using AI to design new proteins and understand viral structures and generate synthetic data sets trained on real patient data and disease history, which I think is going to exponentially change how we approach drug discovery, how pace of innovation and new medication and novel solutions and therapies come to market. And I'm really excited to see all the ways in which founders are leveraging the power of large language models and AI to improve care delivery while at the same time we're facing a shortage of providers. So more to come there, but really excited about that space. 
Jess, thank you so much for this conversation and for sharing your, you know, your wealth of knowledge and experiences with us. Um, I, I hope this conversation serves as a wake-up call, as you had put it, for you know, both founders and um, entrepreneurs to focus specifically on aspects of healthcare that really need our attention right now. So again, really thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.